Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist, and in this future-gazing podcast series, we consider speculative scenarios and provocative prophecies. The idea is to give us a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. In this episode, we'll be asking, what if America and China clash in the South China Sea? It used to be really difficult, apparently, to come up with a scenario for a Chinese-American armed clash. You'd have to push it forward really quite a long way into the future to get yourself there. Now, when they run these war game scenarios, they're not really far into the future at all. And I'll be taking to the streets of London in a self-driving car. How does Europe compare in the race to build autonomous vehicles? Okay. OK, we're now engaged. The car's driving itself. So I can see the steering wheel is moving very, very smoothly, driving like a very, very careful chauffeur. But first, let's head to the South China Sea to imagine a future scenario where a maritime clash takes place between two superpowers, China and America. Tonight at 10, a rare glimpse of China's ambitious expansion in one A not-so-veiled warning to China to halt its military buildup on contested islands in the South China U.S. Sea. Navy's Pacific Fleet reportedly getting ready to hold a number of operations in the South Today, China China's defense minister, Wei Feng, told Defense Secretary Jim Mattis and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo that, quote, military confrontation would spell disaster for all. For those who haven't been paying attention to the problems bubbling away in the region, let's first set the scene. The South China Sea is a a big body of water in which a lot of maritime trade goes through, oil, gas, and also merchandise. This is Oriana Schuyler Mastro, an assistant professor of security studies at Georgetown University and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. She's also the author of a recent book on wartime diplomacy called The Costs of Conversation. And she's a senior China analyst at the Pentagon. So she spends a lot of time thinking about how China views the world. China has declared basically that they have sovereignty over the South China Sea. And so for the past 10 years, they have tried to exercise, in their words or in their view, their sovereignty in these waters by harassing other military vessels, U.S. vessels, for example, that are operating there. Uh, In addition to their view that they can regulate military activity, they declare that most of the South China Sea is their exclusive economic zone, even though a lot of those waters are very close to other countries and are in recognized economic zones of other countries. So we have a lot of these incidents, both on the military side, also on the commercial civilian side, in which the Chinese are kind of harassing and preventing not only the United States, but also all the other regional actors, because there are other claimants to islands and waters in the South China Sea from actually exercising their own sovereignty there. So it's become a very kind of busy area of constant incidents and dangerous interactions. Okay, and they've also been building various sort of military installations and in fact, because of creating new islands and things, haven't they? Yes. So the land reclamation activities in which they've built, I think, 3,200 acres of land, there's sort of two purposes for this. The first one is that China says this allows them to actually declare more of these waters as their territorial seas. Now, international law would say that man-made features don't get a territorial sea. If you can imagine just like an oil rig out in the ocean, you don't have to respect 
that as territory. And so the United States and the international community argue that if you build an island somewhere, then it doesn't get all these rights. But China says it does. And so this this is how they extend their sovereignty. And then they've militarized these islands. And so even though Xi Jinping famously promised to President Obama he would not do so, um, the Chinese have since built significant facilities on a few of these islands, things like runways, hangars for fighters. They've moved air defense systems uh, onto some of them. And a lot of the berthing facilities, so where ships can go, you know, can be quite big, can be the size of, of the Pentagon. So it seems like they're preparing to be able to conduct military operations from these islands. And so if you actually have military bases a little bit farther out, you can then conduct operations at a farther range. It makes it easier for you to persist in your military operations in a certain area. So it will give China a military advantage to have these military bases there. That's how things stand today. But in a recent article, The Economist's Beijing bureau chief, David Rennie, imagined a future scenario involving a maritime clash between China and America. So a lot of Americans, the South China Sea probably isn't on their radar. If they have to imagine a bad scenario in Asia, they probably think about North Korea and something to do with nukes. But what has struck me is that when I talk to people either in the American military or academics who do strategic stuff, they're actually just as concerned about the South China Sea. And the Americans have been trying to fly the flag for freedom of navigation, for the idea that when it's open water, a warship from another country is perfectly free to sail through these bits of sea. And in particular, they disagree strongly with the Chinese that this is Chinese territorial water. And one way to make that abundantly clear is to sail American warships through bits of sea that China, but nobody else, says are Chinese territorial water. And if you look at some previous clashes in the South China Sea and how they almost went wrong, and then you talk to people on the inside of this business, and I did run this scenario past some people who I can't name, but who do this for a living, you just have to kind of turn the dial and say, well, what if everything that could go wrong does go wrong right at an election time? And that, that's basically how I tried to craft this. So how did you lead up to the clash in your scenario? So the American Navy ship that I choose is something called the USS McCampbell, which is a guided missile destroyer, which is based in Japan, sails through the South China Sea. And it's on one of these regularly routine, what they call freedom of navigation operations, where they steam through some sea that is very carefully chosen and is taking a course that the Americans and international law says is not Chinese territorial water, which they've done many times. This time it goes wrong. And it goes wrong because China resorts to what a lot of the kind of strategic folk call grey zone operations. And so a grey zone operation is neither war nor peace. And it's where there's a kind of deniable aggression by China that because it doesn't involve a Chinese naval ship, but involves boats that are clearly armed and armoured and guided by the Chinese military, but are pretending to be fishing boats, and they go after a very high-tech bit of kit that the American ship is towing out the back. And that's what goes wrong, because the thing that they grab, which is called a towed array, is a sensitive enough bit of underwater technology that the Americans feel duty-bound to try and get it back. Now, something like this did, in fact, uh, almost happen a few years ago. And the Chinese were seen kind of fishing in the water with boat hooks, trying to grab this 
bit of very sensitive technology. They didn't get it that time. Uh, but this time, in my scenario, they do. The Americans send out a small boat with American sailors uh, armed to get it back. They get into a confrontation with the Chinese fishermen. Shots are fired. Unclear why or who. But there's a dead Chinese fisherman. There's an American sailor in the water. And the American sailor then turns up on the mothership on the Chinese side and is basically being held prisoner or hostage. And that's a real problem because the U.S. Navy captain, he cannot leave his sailor behind. And so his only real choice, and he has no good choices, is to keep that Chinese mothership in line of sight to make sure that his sailor isn't sort of whisked off somewhere else. And so he can't get away. Okay, so how does your very believable scenario end? And what do you think the broader takeaway is? So it ends in a not very satisfying way for the Americans. They get their sailor back, but ultimately this incredibly sophisticated, powerful warship kind of slinks off. And what I think everyone concludes is that the Chinese have kind of created a test which they won, which is that the political price of sending the next warship into the same bit of the South China Sea has just gone way up. And though, although some hawks in Congress are saying this is an absolute disgrace and we should send warships back kind of on a very frequent basis to make the point. Actually, you can see the American public has no stomach for it. And so China has just upped the price for America of enforcing freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. And I think that what you see with this kind of scenario is that there are bits of the world where China just cares about it more and is willing to take bigger risks and be more aggressive. And an America that is doubting whether it wants to be the world's policeman and that is not quite sure whether it wants to be supporting the Asian security structure, every time China mounts one of these very carefully planned challenges, you test America, and America's will is ultimately found wanting. You did mention that you'd run this past people, but is this type of scenario something that people in the Pentagon and elsewhere are worried about and are thinking about? It absolutely is, not least because it has almost happened a, a few times. I mean, one of the interesting things is if you talk to Pentagon officials and officers who run war games involving clashes in places like the South China Sea, one of the things about a war game is to kind of state the obvious, you need to have a plausible war. You can't have a war game without a fictional war. And it used to be really difficult, apparently, to come up with a scenario for a Chinese-American armed clash. You'd have to push it forward really quite a long way into the future to get yourself there. Now, when they run these war game scenarios, they're not really far into the future at all. Oriana Schuyler Mastro says she finds David's scenario involving a swarm of supposed fishing boats rather than a direct confrontation very plausible. That's very likely. I mean, China, part of their coercive diplomacy, their strategy is to create that deniability because it complicates U.S. decision making about how to respond. Because the United States is very concerned about proportionality. And so in our view, if China is not using their navy, then if we bring in our navy in a response, that's an escalation. And finally, do you think, just looking forward over the next few years, that the South China Sea is somewhere that the world should be paying more attention to? I think the South China Sea lies at the heart of the U.S.-China strategic competition. And I think that the United States prevailing in that competition is the key factor that determines whether or not the liberal order persists in the international system. So all of that is to say that I think the South China Sea is the most important issue in international politics. If the United States does not maintain its ability to operate there militarily, then we can no longer deter China 
because we don't have the military capabilities to hold China at risk sufficiently. And in that case, then we have trouble defending Taiwan. And then the Chinese Navy pushes out a little farther, we'll have trouble defending even Japan. And before that, the Philippines. And so I'm worried that, in my view, China is currently behaving itself. And it's behaving itself because it thinks use of force would not be successful because the U.S. military is there. So if we concede that space, I think we're going to see a much more aggressive China. And then on the political, you know, economic, diplomatic side, what is the role of U.S. leadership then in the region if we can't uh, ensure that rule of law prevails and that countries have the freedom to pursue what's in their interests without fear of coercion? And so for me, this is what really lies at the heart of whether or not the United States wants to continue to be a leader in the international system. And given that Asia is so important now economically as well, if the United States concedes its leadership position there, um, you know, it might as well concede its leadership position on the global stage. So I'm constantly confused and surprised that it's not a bigger issue. President Trump has never really tweeted about it. It didn't come up in, you know, in the Democratic debate. Um, I wonder if it's a combination of American hubris that we think our military is is so good that it can prevail in all situations combined with wishful thinking. Like there's no way that China would ever try to use force. But if you look at history, China has often used force, even when it's in an inferior military position. So now you're creating a situation in which they think they might be able to prevail. That's not a China that I think the United States or the world wants to deal with. So I think it's very important for us to maintain deterrence in the region, to have stability and peace and continued prosperity there. And finally, I recently went for a ride in a self-driving car on the streets of London, accompanied by Stan Boland. Stan is the CEO of 5AI, a startup that's currently testing autonomous vehicles in Britain. Okay, okay we're now engaged. The car's driving itself. So I can see the steering wheel is moving, and we're going past a traffic light, and we're coming up to a red light, and there's a, there's a lane that turns left with the green light, and we're in the right lane, so we're having to wait for the lights to change, which they now have. And the car's put the indicator on as well, and it's following another car around this junction. Very, very smoothly, driving like a very, very careful chauffeur. Unlike testing in sunny parts of America, like Arizona, where grid systems in many cities make roads much more predictable, European road layouts are often older and more complicated, and there are more cyclists and more rain. Cars were originally invented in Europe, but now American firms seem to be leading the way in the development of self-driving vehicles. So how does the situation in Europe compare? To discuss this, Stan Boland has now joined me in the studio. Hello, Stan, and welcome to the non-autonomous studio of The Economist. Thanks, Tom. So how's the environment for autonomous cars in Europe different from that in America? Well, I think the operating environment is different. So you know, if you look at the, uh, the amount of light, the amount of rain, the topologies, the density of people, it's a lot more challenging here. So although the challenges in a sense are similar, you see them a lot more often here in Europe. And there is just no choice but to think about the problem in a deeper way. And how does your car physically differ from the kind of things you might see in America, for example, to get rid of rain? 
Rain is a challenge. I think you find in the US there's a big emphasis on use of LIDAR in a lot of self-driving cars. So we use LIDAR as well. And this is a kind of radar that uses invisible light, basically. It's right. Uh, so it basically sends up pulses of light and detects the distance of those points uh, from us. So LIDAR works well if it's not raining. If it starts to rain, the LIDAR gets reflected, it gets dispersed from those droplets of light. And it's a much more complex task to work out where things are. So we don't have such a big emphasis on LIDAR. We we put a much bigger emphasis on the use of things like stereo vision, which turns out to be a lot more robust. But this is the sort of thing that if you're testing in the streets of Phoenix, Arizona, you don't really have to think about. Well, you don't have to think about it very often. You look at rainfall in those US cities, the Sunbelt states has been proven uh, today. Uh, it doesn't actually rain very much. And in some places, it doesn't rain at all. Whereas you come to London, obviously, it's uh, a maxim of the city, isn't it, that it's uh, terrible weather. So we have to make sure that our systems are robust in all those kind of conditions. And, and that leads us to think much more deeply I think, about how we solve the problem than you may have to do if your starting point is building it in in Arizona, say. So it's sort of, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere idea. I think that's true. I, th- yeah, I think what's clear is that we've got to build a large amount of tools and infrastructure to solve this problem. And the incidence of how often that you're reminded of that is much higher here in Europe. So there is really no choice but to build the infrastructure and to build something that is actually going to be safe and provably safe. And that's actually one area where I think Europe is strong actually. If you look at the automotive industry in Europe, it's got a very, very strong uh, record in in safety. Okay, so that brings us to the question of the environment in Europe being different in another way, which is the regulatory environment and the funding environment. So what's it like as a, a startup in this ecosystem in Europe, and how is it different from the way it would be in America? Well, if you just take the first of those things, regulation, we're very, very closely involved with uh, governments in helping work out what the regulatory environment should be. One of the things that's super encouraging is the fact that in the UK, there's been a big government investment in helping to work out regulation ahead of time, really, much more so than you see in the US. So the US is really allowing companies to run ahead and regulators trying to catch up. Here, there's much more cooperation, actually. And I I definitely feel that we are coming up with much better answers in terms of how we protect our citizens from risk, and then how we can build certification and verification processes ahead of time. uh, So that we know and the public knows that this stuff is safe. So I think that is a big strength that I think we're going to have here. Okay, um, now, what about funding? Because, you know, this is an area where Europe does actually have some global giants. Car making is something that, you know, we may not have a big search engine or a big social network based in Europe, but there are car makers. So how does that affect the sort of perception of uh, the startup environment and the startups that are working in this space in Europe? Well, there has been actually pretty good interest in investing in self-driving technology here in Europe. So, you know, actually all our investors are European investors today. And uh, we've made significant progress in actually a relatively small amount of capital that we've raised. So I mean, the European funding environment is definitely different. And uh, I think the nature in the way that we have to build businesses here will be slightly different to the US. I think it's going to be a much more collaborative environment where, you know, we will build key pieces of technology alongside other people that are building other key complementary pieces of technology. And we'll figure out ways in which we put them together. So that is a slight difference to the go it alone, raise billions of dollars that you see in the US. We're approaching our first roundabout, so this is what I really want to see. And there's no one coming from the right, so we can go around. And here we go, that was beautifully done. There you go. Now that's not something that autonomous cars in America 
have to deal with very often or indeed at all I think I can't, I can't think when I've never seen it traffic I circle. think there's a couple of traffic circles in the US but not many yeah, so the, Europe is littered with them um, and some of them are really quite complex uh, but that, that was a relatively straightforward now, the public perception, I think, of this sector is that sort of enthusiasm and optimism have waned a bit in the last couple of years and that maybe this was all a bit overhyped. Do you pay any attention to that when you're actually working at the coal face of the technology? A bit. So there is no question, uh, Tom, that we've been through this cycle of overhype and then we've been through the sort of trough of disillusionment, if you think of the Gartner hype cycle. Uh, uh, do you, where do you think we are then? Are we coming out of the I trough? I think we are coming out of it. In fact, I would say this cycle is faster than anyone we've seen, actually. Uh, so we went into the peak very, very quickly, and then we went through the dip quickly. And we are now reaching the point where it's becoming much more obvious that there are some enabling long-term key technologies that people are working on that are going to be essential to solving the problem. And people are now reaching into those. Okay, well, that said, you know, the news is dominated by companies who said they were going to launch in 2020 saying maybe we're not. And so if I had to pin you down on some dates, uh, what would you say about when this actually comes to market? We certainly have swung from optimism to pessimism uh, in terms of time, in terms of when that's going to be. I think we're now all at a much more realistic place in terms of when this really will come to market. But I think it's realistic to expect that within the next four to five years, we will start to see this technology deployed initially on limited routes in specific cities, but where the safety driver removed and where you can be assured that that system is going to be safe and is going to operate uh, in a way that is going to deliver utility to the city. So I think I think roughly that time frame, I think, is what you can expect. Okay. And it's not, of course, just a technological question. There's also the question of public perception. How do you sense that that changing? When people see your car, how do they react? And what's, I mean, What's your perception of, of public perception? Well, I think the first time we took our cars out on public roads, we had you know, people driving past in motorbikes that would stop and take photos of the car and you almost cause an accident in front of us, really. So it doesn't take long, though, for the members of the public to get completely used to seeing these cars. And, yeah, we do a lot of test driving around our proving grounds and now in the streets of London. And people are really quite used to it, really. And I think the key responsibility for companies like ours is it's just got to be safe. Yeah, we, we have to set a very, very high safety bar here, particularly here in Europe, and then make sure we've got the tools and technology to meet it. And I think only through doing that can we ever really expect to develop the trust of the public and and to be able to sort of deploy these systems out there. So for us, that's the number one goal. Our North Star, if you like, is it just has to be safe. Stan Berlin, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Tom. That's all for this edition of The World Ahead. If you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription to The Economist? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist.